Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 39 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, the first woman in space, Vostok 5 and 6. In June of 1963, the Soviet Union performed an encore of the Vostok 3 and 4 missions, with two manned spaceships orbiting the Earth simultaneously. However, Vostok 5 and 6 was far more than a simple repetition. Vostok 5's objective was to beat the flight duration record. But the most surprising news came two days later with the launch of Vostok 6 carrying the first woman in space, 26-year-old Valentina Tereshkova. The Soviet decision to fly a woman in space was triggered by the Cold War competition with the U.S., In the U.S., an unofficial campaign to let women join early astronaut training was widely publicized, and the Soviets took it very seriously. Nikolai Kamanin, the man who oversaw cosmonaut training within the Soviet Air Force, made multiple references to American plans to launch a woman in space in his diary, leaving little doubts about the true reason behind the mission of Valentina Tereshkova. Kamanin believed that flights of women in space would soon be routine. Therefore, it made sense to start preparing now. But more importantly, it would be unacceptable for the Soviet Union to let the U.S. launch the first woman. Additionally, he knew the first woman in space would be a very good propaganda tool for the Soviets. In August of 1961, Kamanin made an official proposal to launch a woman into space. His plan gained support from Marshal Sergei Rendinko, Deputy Air Force Commander, along with a number of high-ranking officers. Four months later, on December 23, 1961, Kamanin learned that the Central Committee had approved the selection of 60 new cosmonauts, including six women. He considered the decision to be a personal victory. At the time, Kamanin expected the first Soviet woman to fly in space in the second half of 1962, and possibly two women cosmonauts orbiting the Earth before the end of the same year. Kamanin immediately arranged with the Central Committee of the Military to select a pool of 200 young female pilots and parachute jumpers in order to eventually choose the four or five best candidates. The committee submitted files, including personal statements, autobiographies, questionnaires, and flight certificates for the 40 to 50 first candidates on January 15, 1962. Kamanin reviewed them on January 18th and selected 23 candidates for immediate medical checks, even though he found most of them lacking the necessary experience for a fast-track training in just five or six months. Once again, the tight deadline was because of the perceived threat from the U.S. By the end of February 1962, Kamanin hoped to have a woman to fly in space in August or September, with the actual training schedule to start on March 1st. At the time, nine women were undergoing medical checks. On February 27th, Kamanin chaired a selection commission meeting, which interviewed seven candidates who had all passed their medical test with flying colors. Kamanin singled out Solofyova, Tereshkova, and Kuznetsova as the best candidates. 
with Yerkina and Pano Mareva as runners-up. The top three candidates were officially enrolled in the Cosmonaut Training Center on March 12, 1962, followed by Yerkina and Pano Mareva on April 3rd. Since the Cosmonaut Training Center was part of the Air Force, all five women were drafted into the military. In May, during his trip to the U.S., Kamanin again confirmed that several U.S. women had started training and were expected to fly by the end of 1962. At the end of November, four female candidates completed the training and passed the exams. One of the trainees, Kuznetsova, dropped out due to health problems. The four were recommended to be put on the staff of the Cosmonaut Training Center and given a rank of junior lieutenant. By that time, Kamanin had gotten to know his new recruits and was able to decide who would have the honor of becoming the first Soviet woman in space. He characterized Tereshkova as, quote, Gargarin in a skirt, end quote. Thanks to her ongoing personality, leadership, and ideological loyalty. But Tereshkova had the least education and flying experience among her colleagues, with only a diploma from a textile production school and 126 parachute jumps at the aviation club. On the other hand, Ponomareva had graduated from Moscow Aviation Institute and logged 320 pilot hours. She also scored the highest on the cosmonaut exams. Solovyova graduated from the construction department of the Ural Polytech Institute and had made 900 parachute jumps. However, Kamanin and other Soviet officials were ready to ignore all of Tereshkova's shortcomings in education and experience because of her potential as a future representative of the Soviet system and a loyal communist propagandist. They reasoned that the first woman cosmonaut would spend only a few days in orbit, but the rest of her life as a public figure and a representative of her nation and its political system. Kamanin wanted Solovyova to serve as Tereshkova's backup because she was best at physical activities, but she was somewhat of an introvert. Kamanin wanted Ponomareva to be third in line, even though she was the most capable. Kamanin did not like her attitude and conduct. After their graduation from cosmonaut training, Kamanin told all four women they would be prepared for a space flight and all would have a chance to fly in space. However, the pilot for the first mission would be selected a few days before launch. On January 10, 1963, Kamanin met with Korolev and others to discuss the next Vostok missions that were planned for April or May of 1963. They were considering three alternatives. First, a three-day orbital flight of a single spacecraft with a woman pilot. Second, a dual flight with two women on board launching within 24 hours of each other and landing simultaneously after the first spacecraft had logged three days in orbit. And third, a female pilot launching first for a three-day mission, followed by a male pilot launching a day later and orbiting the Earth for five to seven days. Of course, Kamanin favored the dual flight with two women. 
and Korolev wanted a long-duration flight. The military did not see much use in manned spaceflight and threatened to cut funding. It wasn't until March 23rd that the Central Committee approved a woman's flight alongside the long-duration flight of a male pilot lasting up to 10 days. This was a compromise between the engineers that wanted to push the frontier and the politicians who wanted great space propaganda. The next three months were spent in training and solving various problems with spacesuits, ejection seats, and cleaning up medical issues. Before flight, all cosmonauts were required to undergo thermal training. This involved wearing a spacesuit and remaining in the capsule simulator for three to five days. Of the female candidates, all but Yerkina completed thermal training with flying colors. Yerkina took off her shoes after one day because they were too tight. She ate only a third of her required food rations and actually fainted when exiting the capsule. However, the male cosmonauts were having problems as well. The ejection seat for Vostok 5 could be fitted only for Baikovsky, but his presumed backup pilot, Voyanov, had gained weight, making it nearly impossible to use the same ejection seat for both cosmonauts. Kamanin considered replacing Voyanov with Komarov, but the Air Force Hospital disqualified cosmonaut Komarov due to heart problems. On May 10, 1963, it was decided to plan the departure of cosmonauts to the launch site on May 27th or 28th and plan the launch between June 3rd and June 5th. Baikovsky was approved as a primary pilot and somehow Volyanov as his backup, despite his previous weight problem. Tereshkova was confirmed as a primary pilot with Solovyova and Ponomareva as backups. And now a little background on the pilots selected for Vostok 5 and 6. Valery Baikovsky was born August 2, 1934 in Pavlovsky-Posad, Russia. He started flying lessons at the age of 16. He joined the Army in 1952 and in 1959 he became a jet fighter pilot. In 1960, he was selected to enter cosmonaut training. Valentina Tereshkova was born on March 6, 1937, in the village of Maslenikovo, Yaroslav Oblast, in central Russia. Her parents had migrated from Belarus. Tereshkova's father was a tractor driver and her mother worked in a textile plant. Tereshkova began school in 1945 at the age of eight, but left school in 1953 and continued her education by correspondence courses. She became interested in parachuting from a young age and trained in skydiving at the local aero club, making her first jump at age 22. At the time, she was employed as a textile worker in a local factory. In 1961, she became the secretary of the local Young Communist League and later joined the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. Now back to the preparation for launch. On May 13th, Tereshkova and Solofyova returned from the Black Sea where they had made seven parachute jumps. 
including jumps in their flight suits and landing in the water. Ponomareva and Yurkina completed the same exercises two days later. On May 14th, Kamanin received a document signed by two dozen medical specialists demanding to keep cosmonauts in the thermal simulator longer than their actual flight. Kamanin knew that this would unnecessarily exhaust the pilots just prior to their flight. So, on May 16th, Kamanin met with medical specialists and helped them decide that this was not necessary. On May 20th, the State Commission postponed the launch dates for Vostok 5 and 6 to a period between June 5th and June 10th. Also, the Air Force submitted to the Commission official statements which cosmonauts were expected to make before launch and from orbit. On the morning of May 21st, Korolev and other officials arrived at the Cosmonaut Training Center and met with the cosmonauts. The pilot, Baikowski and Tereshkova, were reconfirmed again, as well as mission durations of eight days for Vostok 5 and three days for Vostok 6. In the final days of May 1963, numerous officials and specialists headed to the launch site near Tyratam. Inside the assembly building at Site 2, Korolev personally led the final two weeks of preparation for launch and engineers found glitches in the telemetry systems of both spacecraft. On June 1st at 10 a.m., a group of 35 Air Force representatives, including already flown cosmonauts and future Vostok pilots, landed in Tyratam in front of Soviet pre-approved cameras and officials. On June 3rd, Tereshkova Solovyova and Ponomareva tried on their spacesuits and sat in the ejection seat. In the meantime, Baikowski and Voyanov sat inside the Vostok 5 for their fit checks. Korolev reviewed and approved a set of military observation tasks proposed at the last minute by the Air Force. They included observation of fire, smoke, explosions, and lights. On June 4th, the State Commission held a meeting that formally approved Baikowski and Tereshkova to fly Vostok 5 and Vostok 6, respectively. Foyanov and Ponomareva and Solofyova were confirmed as backups. According to some reports, Tereshkova had two backups due to the, quote, peculiarity of the female organism, end quote. At 6 p.m., the State Commission gathered for a ceremonial meeting complete with prepared speeches by Baikowski and Tereshkova before a few cameras of the Soviet media that were sanctioned to access the launch site. It was announced that a male pilot would fly for eight days and a female for three. On June 5th, strong winds prevented the planned rollout and launch of Vostok 5. In case you were wondering, Vostok 5 used the same 8K-72 launch vehicle and 3KA capsule as previous missions, except this time the capsule was packed with more items to support a longer flight. Kamanin used the launch delay to review with the cosmonauts the coded messages that they were to use in any open communications with the ground. 
There were two categories of messages, one concerning their health status and another the status of their spacecraft. Here are a sample of some of the code words. The code words, everything is great, meant that the mission can continue. Everything is good meant some doubts or problems. Everything is satisfactory meant a call to abort the mission. Palm tree meant you do not feel good. Rowan tree meant vomiting. Spruce meant manual control is not functioning. Haloxylon meant the toilet is not functioning. Fig meant there was a temperature problem. Sugarcane meant nausea. Cranberry meant problems urinating. Syringa meant no bowel movement for days. Jasmine meant can't see well. Elderberry meant bad appetite, could not eat. And pear meant stomach bloating. Okay, back to the launch. On June 6, the rollout of the rocket was started again. However, there was a failure of the command radio channel. The problem took three days to be resolved. Finally, on the morning of June 9, Vostok 5 was rolled out to the launch pad. The launch was scheduled for June 11th. Korolev supervised the test of the vehicle on the launch pad. On June 10th, Baikovsky made the traditional trip to the launch pad to meet the personnel preparing his rocket. Later that day, Keldish, the head of the Soviet Academy of Sciences, called from Moscow and asked that the launch be postponed due to the danger of increased solar radiation. The Crimean Observatory was forecasting a sharp increase in solar activity. Powerful solar flares had the potential to disrupt communications and bring dangerous radiation to anyone orbiting the Earth. On June 11th, the State Commission reviewed the situation. It was reported that as of 4 p.m., the sun displayed no flares. The radiation levels in near-Earth space seemed to be normal. However, the probability of future burst remained high and capable of subjecting the cosmonauts to unacceptable levels of radiation. The State Commission had no choice but to postpone the launch again. On June 12th, problems with the sun continued, but by the end of the day, most officials finally agreed that even under the worst circumstances, Vostok's metal skin and thermal layers would provide enough of a safety margin for the pilots. At 10 p.m. Moscow time, Korolev received the go for launch. On the morning of June 13th, launch preparations were finally back on track. At 7 p.m., Baikovsky and Voyanov went through final medical checks. As with previous launches, the cosmonauts spent the night in the small cottages at Site 2. On the morning of June 14th, Baikovsky and his backup pilot, Voyanov, received their medical checks and suited up for launch. At 11 a.m., Korolev met with the cosmonauts. 
He reminded Baikowski to report on the performance of the third stage and its separation from the spacecraft during his ride to orbit. At 11.45, the cosmonauts arrived at the launch pad. After traditional goodbyes, Baikowski took his seat in the spacecraft. Soon thereafter, it was discovered that both UHF transmitters of the spacecraft were not functioning. Baikowski could hear the ground control via six different channels, showing that his receivers were working. However, ground controllers could only hear him via three shortwave radios. It was decided to proceed with the launch despite the problem. At T-minus one hour before launch, a problem with Baikowski's ejection seat was discovered. The launch was delayed by 30 minutes while engineers rushed upstairs to reopen the hatch and repair the problem. At T-minus 15 minutes, Gagarin, Korolev, and Kamanin went into the underground bunker overlooking the launch pad. At T-minus 5 minutes, readiness was declared. Preliminary commands were issued. Then it was discovered that a display confirming readiness of the third stage was not on. The launch was paused while officials called flight control specialists for help. The specialist asked for two to three hours to investigate and repair the problem. Due to limitations on landing in daylight after an eight-day flight, the launch had to be made by 1700 or within three hours after opening of the launch window. Further delays would require the fuel tanks to be drained and the rocket removed from the launch pad and sent back to the factory for refurbishment, which would delay the mission until August at the earliest. As it turned out, a gyroscope in the guidance system on the third stage had failed. Officials now faced a dilemma. Either race against time and replace the device on the fueled rocket or postpone the mission for several weeks. Many members of the state commission wanted to postpone, but Korolev prevailed and the decision was made to press ahead and fix the problem within the launch window. Baikowski endured the wait with his usual calm demeanor. Gagarin helped with cheerful messages via a communications link with spacecraft. In the meantime, a replacement gyro was quickly tested and installed on the third stage. The final problem occurred just seconds before launch, when a gantry with umbilical cables refused to retract. Again, Korolev and his associates did not interrupt the launch sequence, and as soon as the rocket started vibrating from running the engines, the umbilical disconnected and the gantry fell away. Vostok 5 finally lifted off at the very end of its launch window and successfully reached orbit. As the third stage separated with a bang, leaving the spacecraft weightless, Baikowski saw snowflakes flying behind the window. Thanks for listening to this archive episode of the Space Rocket History Podcast. If you are financially able, please support the podcast by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks.